Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Ellen Cassidy. Ellen was one of a group of 10 women workers who started an organization called 9 to 5 in Boston, Massachusetts, in the 1970s. Set up with the abuse and low pay, they organized to improve their lives on the job. They then spread the idea around the country, formed a woman-led union, and built a national movement that inspired Jane Fonda to make a movie and Dolly Parton to write a song. Ellen is a Yiddish translator and graduate of the Yiddish Book Center's Translation Fellowship Program and a recipient of a translation award. She got a particular interest in translating work by women who have important stories to tell but who have been long overlooked. She talks with us today about how the Yiddish-speaking women activists of 100 years ago inspired the women of the 9 to 5 movement. Also worth mentioning, and we will repeat it again this Monday, February 1, on PBS will be airing a new documentary called 9 to 5, The Story of a Movement, from Oscar-winning directors Julia Reichert and Steve Bogner. Watch the film at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, and Western. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Oh, always delighted to speak to one another, and I'll acknowledge that we've known each other for, well, I think it was 2012 when... Um, you and Yeramahu are the recipients of a Yiddish Book Center Translation Award for your work with the translation of Bluma Lempel, and you continue to work as a translator, and um, you're always contributing something to the Yiddish Book Center's work and to translation um, in general. Um, but what I didn't know all these years was about your involvement with the 9 to 5 movement, um, and so excited to hear about this and the upcoming documentary. So um curious to ask about your activism and any of the Yiddish and Jewish roots that inspired that. Yeah, so I was a founder of the 9 to 5 Working Women's Organization in Boston in the early 1970s. Um, within a few years, we went national. We joined with other organizations in New York and Cleveland, San Francisco, and eventually dozens of other cities. And we formed a woman-led union called District 925, affiliated with the Service Employees International Union. And as you said, our organizing inspired Jane Fonda to make the film 9 to 5 in 1980, a huge box office hit, with the theme song 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton, which so many people know today. It's really an anthem for women workers everywhere. And I do trace my uh, activism back to stories that my grandfather told me. Um, my grandfather was, um, this was my Jewish grandfather on my mother's side. He arrived in the United States from Lithuania in 1911, escaping the draft. And uh, he would tell me stories about the early activism in New York um, that was going on among um, men and women, working men and women. He was a socialist activist before he became a pharmacist. And he would talk about how he would climb the stairs in tenement buildings to distribute leaflets. And he told me about one man who opened the door, took one look at him and said, get out of here, you little Jew, or I'm gonna kick you down the stairs. And my grandfather, who was five foot two with glasses and totally looked like the very picture of a Jewish immigrant, he would say to me with a twinkle in his eye, how that fellow knew that I was a Jew, I will never know. So my grandfather also told me about going to Union Square on the Lower East Side of New York and listening to the garment women speaking about their struggle. 
he heard Rose Schneiderman uh, speaking on a soapbox. And she was one of the most prominent work, uh, women labor leaders. She was four foot nine, even shorter than my grandfather, with flaming red hair. And she was described as a riveting orator. She was credited with coining the phrase bread and roses, which uh, became the theme of a song, a wonderful, wonderful song that was the, the garment women's anthem at the turn of the 20th century. And it spoke to women workers need not only to subsist, but to live satisfying lives. So man does not live by bread alone. So our slogan as women office workers organizing in the seventies was raises and roses. And uh, that had to do with National Secretary's Day, which was the time when bosses were supposed to um, thank their secretaries for a year of hard work by giving them a bouquet of roses or taking them out to a nice lunch. And our view was we wanted our rights 365 days a year. We wanted roses, uh, raises, but uh, to go along with the roses. Um, I can also talk about Clara Lemlech. She was another leader of what came to be known as the uprising of the 20,000 the massive strike of garment women in 1909. And Clara Lemlech had immigrated to the United States from Ukraine in 1903 after the pogrom in Kishinev. And uh, one night, thousands of workers were gathered in a big hall on the Lower East Side of New York and union officials were speaking hour after hour, sort of platitudes and on and on. And then Clara Lemlech made history. She was lifted up onto the stage and she delivered a ringing call for a strike in Yiddish. There was a huge roar of applause and the strike began among 20,000 garment women. Uh, most of the, the strikers were young women and many of them were Yiddish speakers. It was the biggest strike by women ever. I think up to this day as well. And the uprising led to improvements in wages and hours, and it transformed the union, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, from a union that dismissed women to one that was revitalized and enlarged by thousands and thousands of brave, committed women. So when we were starting 9 to 5, we studied that history, and we felt very close to these women. Now, of course, office work didn't compare to the sweatshop in the degree of suffering and the level of oppression and the danger to life and limb. But we were very aware of the parallels because immigrant women at the turn of the 20th century were forced into a job ghetto. They were considered unreliable, unworthy of doing anything but repetitive, soul-deadening factory work. They were forced to compete against each other because all the other jobs were closed to them. And then in the 1970s, we had 12 million women flooding into the workforce for the first time, filling these new jobs in the office industries, in banks and insurance companies, and law firms. We were earning the lowest pay. We were stereotyped just like the women of the turn of the 20th century as unreliable. We lacked the skills needed for higher jobs. The higher jobs were closed to us. And we were considered either sex objects or office wives. 
women were dismissed just the way women were at the turn of the century. And the job ghetto was used in exactly the same way to hold down wages and, um, and create a situation where people competed against each other instead of being able to um, use their skills and move around in the economy. Ellen, it's really interesting to me. I mean, I think it's safe to say that history repeats itself or it's part of a continuum. So uh, the fight continues to go on, yes? Right. Yeah. yeah. And and I guess where I was going with this is I'm just wondering, um, when you were participating in this documentary and obviously reflecting back on all that you did with this movement, do you have any thoughts about it and also just thinking about it in terms of where does the next generation need to take up this cause and carry it forward? Yeah, we felt that we office workers were the garment workers of our day. We felt like the heirs of Rose Schneiderman and Clara Lemleff. It was our turn to lead women to demand our rights. And I think we got a lot out of studying our history and we felt empowered by those who came before, but we also had to forge our own way. We developed creative organizing techniques, ways of embarrassing the boss and using surprise and discrimination charges and media coverage. And we had women feeding us the memos that came across their desks and women speaking up on the job, women joining together to be heard and to make change. And as such, we served as a model for other labor organizing efforts that are going on even today. We modeled the uh, tenet of feeling that you have to de develop the leadership potential of every member. You have to build a multiracial organization. You have to value women as union members, using union organizers, union officials. You have to use community pressure and poke fun at management and that model is still in use today and it's needed today. Even before the pandemic, working families were facing the challenges of contingent work, temp work, the gig economy, 24 hour a day jobs, computerized monitoring. And we're seeing creative new organizing strategies coming out of workers in the big box firms, the big distribution warehouses, Silicon Valley, the care workers, health care, home care, child care, um, there's a, a surge of, of simmering rage, just the way there was in the early 70s and just the way there was at the turn of the 20th century. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, creative uprising again in the years to come. You know, I think there's there's always so much to be drawn from history and from learning. And we at the Yiddish Book Center have launched Decade of Discovery last year, um, and it's thematic every year for the next 10 years. And this year, we're exploring Yiddish and social justice. So as a translator and somebody who has been a champion of getting Yiddish women writers work in translation to reach broader um, audiences. I wonder if you speak a little bit about that. I mean, and certainly in Oedipus in Brooklyn, your translation of Bloom Olympus work, I, you know, I was so surprised um, at the themes and the fact that she had written this in Yiddish in the 20th century. I mean, she deals with abortion, with dating, etc. Um, 
So where do you, you know, draw from in terms of that work and those voices? I feel very inspired by just finding, like, Bluma Lempel is a great example of, of someone who you read her work and you think, what? She had the guts and the insight to talk about so many things that are kind of groundbreaking even today. Um, and these buried treasures of Yiddish literature have so much to share with us about uh, not only history and what people were thinking back then, but also just universal themes and women's desires and women's capabilities. I translated work by Yenta Mash, who uh, is another woman writer in Yiddish who has so much to tell us about women's experience in the 20th century. She was born in Moldova. She ended up being deported to Siberia and then coming back to Soviet Moldova and eventually immigrating to Israel. And it's a, a very fine grained, close to the ground um, uh, sharing of what women were going through in the most dire circumstances and also just sort of everyday life. Um, and I, it, it's a great joy to me to draw these connections between um, women writers who in some ways are activists. They're out there connecting with, with other people and uh, bringing their voices to the fore and speaking up. And to see how in my 20s, I was organizing women in the office that I was working in and women across the country and now bringing the voices of buried, the buried voices of Yiddish uh, writers, women writers, it all sort of comes around and it's all a circle for me. I, I think your grandfather would be proud, surprised and inspired by this, yes? I think so, um, as just as I was inspired by him, you know, yeah. feeling the connection and uh, the reason I started studying Yiddish actually was that um, when my mother died, when I was um, 40, I felt these, these uh, my connection to my Jewish forebears kind of slipping away. And I felt that studying Yiddish would be a way to keep me close to the people who had come before me, um, people who, who laid the groundwork for who I became. And that, that heritage of uh, social justice that is part of the Yiddish tradition, the Yiddishkeit, is so important to me um, and really has, has kept me going all through these years. It, um, knowing you and knowing your work, Ellen, it actually was surprising, and at the same time, it wasn't surprising <laughs> that you were involved in this movement and that, again, it, it's part of that sort of thread and um, and this mosaic that's informed by so many aspects of one's work, one's life, one's engagement. And, uh, it's just great. So um, I'm going to ask you for our listeners if you can, um, again, give a little recap about the documentary, uh, when it airs, and how they can find their way to it. The new documentary film is called Nine to Five, The Story of a Movement, and it's airing on PBS starting on February 1st, Monday, February 1st. The, uh, and then also you can, if you miss it that night, you can stream it for the next month, the whole month of February 
you can uh, get access to this wonderful film. The directors are Julia Reichert and Steve Bognar. And Julia is known for a lifetime of making films about American workers. And it's really just a thrill to have this story told by such superb filmmakers. The two of them won an Academy Award last year for their film, American Factory, which is a fascinating film about how a Chinese tycoon takes over uh, an abandoned uh, auto factory in Ohio and what happens with the, the um, clash of cultures between his management techniques and the, the workers he hires uh, in Ohio. But nine to five, the story of a movement is uh, a real capstone to Julia Reichert's career as a fantastic filmmaker about working people in America. So um, starting Monday, February 1st and continuing all through February uh, is on TV on Monday night and then will be available to stream for the whole month of February. Great. Um, Ellen, thank you so much for taking time to join me today for our conversation. And thank you for all your work, past, present, and future. Um, it's always great to have a chance to visit with you and to learn more about what you're doing. What a so pleasure, thanks. Lisa. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.